After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 105, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by wistfully and regretfully remembering the greatness of Charles Xavier. Oh, I'm looking at a picture of him right now, Chris. I, me too, me too. I can't stop. It's just uh... it's it's, hard. it's too hard. It uh... is, it is. But uh, this this week we are finally, finally yeah. wrapping up the Age of Apocalypse uh, with special attention paid to X Men Omega Number One that was cover dated June 1995. Title of the story is Endings. Which it makes sense. Uh, story: Scott Lobdell. Dialogue: Mark Wade. Pencils: Roger Cruz. Inkers: uh, La Rosa, Townsend, Kiesel, Candelaro, Hannah, and or Hannah and Milgram. <laughs> it's it's like they didn't know this was gonna come, you know. Yeah, or or maybe it's, there were uh, some last minute changes made. They had to get all I hands wonder. on this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lettering: Richard Stockings with Comic Craft. Colors, Steve Bouchelado with Electric Crayon, Edited-in-Chief by Bob Harris. This was an oversized chromium-covered issue. Uh, it came with a cover by John Romita Jr. Uh, came with a cover price of $3.95 USD and $5.55 Canadian, which Ooh. is a, a pretty convenient price on all fives there. Really, yeah. <laughs> now, before we get into the story, let's... Let me ask you, are you tired of hearing about Scott Lobdell yet? A little bit, a little bit, you know, but yeah. we'll do the quick one here. Yeah, we're going to do the quickest of the quick here. Uh, now, we have met him many times over at this point, so here is the fastest version. Born either August 24th, 1960, or sometime during 1963, probably around Marlboro, New York. He wasn't a comic book fan growing up, and he only read them after convalescing from lung surgery. He worked on his college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist, and he would perform interviews. One of these interviews was with comics editor Al Milgram, and so Scott felt he had an in at Marvel. He pitched a story to Tom DeFalco from Marvel Comics Presents Anthology, and he used some obscure characters not to make any waves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lobdell would eventually become the architect, uh, for lack of a better term, of the X-Men line, and took part in many a crossover, including... This one. This very one, yep. And then uh, Mark Wade, a little bit longer, but also the truncated version. <laughs> he was born March 21st, 1962 in Hueytown, Alabama. In 1966, Mark's dad brought home Batman number 180. Cover date was May. Story is Death Knocks Three Times. Matt was captivated by this comic and began collecting comics and never stopped once. Not when he got older, not due to girls, not any of the excuses a lot of people have for why they have a, a stop or a pause in their comic collecting. His teenage life was tumultuous. He fought frequently with his parents, and he spent a lot of time crashing at his friends' houses. In 1979, Mark Wade watched Superman the movie, and this was a life-changing experience. He sat through the movie twice in a row and left with a strong belief in heroism. He said, seeing Superman the movie changed my life in a fundamental and profound way and gave me a North Star that I followed ever since. 
Mark dreamed of working in comics and didn't think he wrote or drew well enough to qualify. So after graduating from the Virginia Commonwealth University, he found work for Amazing Heroes magazine and Comics Buyer's Guide. Since Mark already knew Julia through Amazing Heroes, Julia Schwartz, that is, he was able to, and about to be in New York for the first time, he was able to set up an in-person meeting with Julia Schwartz, and he said, I offered him an eight-pager in which Superman goes to his Arctic fortress only to find it's been stripped bare. Someone has burgled the joint, but who and why? Uh, Schwartz would pick up the story in Wade's first professional comics work. This was uh, in Action Comics number 572, had an October 1985 cover date. Story title was The Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress. And that would be it for him for a little while. Uh, In 1986, he moved to L.A. to work for Fantagraphics as an editor. His first task on the first day was to fire the fellow he was replacing, who, uh, as you might imagine, had no idea it was coming. This is this is always one detail I can never get over because it's such a weird power play by your new boss. You know, like uh, first yeah, thing you do, fire and, that guy. Like, whoa! And it's so real too. Yeah, it it's, really is. It's something that I'm sure happens all the time. Yeah, uh, not just in comics. Uh, yeah. You know. By the spring of 1987, Mark was uh, packaging and editing his own magazine. This was Comics Week. Of it, Mark says, he, he refers to it as an industry news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, but with more hot air. Now, Comics Week would run five issues. Uh, DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn noticed Comics Week and thought that Mark might make a good editor. And Mark was headed it as, as he was hired as an associate editor when he was 25 years old by Dick Giordano, and he moved from L.A. to New York for this. This was his dream job. Uh, his first two days consisted of erasing pencil lines on Green Arrow. Oh, dare to dream. I was going to say, that's glamorous. <laughs> Uh, now, for two years, he primarily edited Secret Origins and made a lot of contacts, but he'd be fired by 1990. Uh, he also edited Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which kicked off DC's Elseworlds imprint. After this, he became a regular freelance writer for DC Comics. And in 1992, he was hired by editor Brian Augustine to write The Flash. And from here, his star would take off. Uh, Mark would write The Flash for eight years. Uh, now, his own series uh, in April 1995 by Wade and Humberto Ramos was Impulse, a character he introduced in Flash. Uh, in November of that same year, Wade and Howard Porter would collaborate on Underworld Unleashed. This was a limited series event that served as a core for a storyline of the company-wide crossover event uh, of the same name. At the same time, Mark Wade was writing for Marvel, and his first major project for them was as one of the writers for this very crossover, The Age of Apocalypse. Guy was juggling a lot of work right here in the mid-90s, but I guess for you got to sure. strike while the iron's hot. Uh, and then also just a quick wrap-up on Roger Cruz again. Uh, Rogerio de, Rogerio de Cruz Corota was born on February 22, 1971 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He started his professional career with Editoria Abril, a major Brazilian publisher and printing company, mostly lettering Portuguese translations of American comics. He was introduced to the American comics world by Art and Comics Studio and found himself getting work from Marvel Comics. And this book was one of those jobs that he got from Marvel Comics. So there you go. That might be our shortest intro yet. It really, really may be, yeah. (laughs) Because we are already at X-Men Omega. And uh, we open it up, and uh, we are we are seeing Magneto stood before Apocalypse and Apocalypse's son, Holocaust. Uh, the latter two would really like for Magneto to stay down. Yeah, Holocaust says, fall down, Magnus. Make it easier on all of us. Magneto goes, never. Face reality, Magnus. Once upon a time, you championed the vision. 
a precious little dream full of smiles and handshakes. But the time for dreaming is over. Wake up. Magneto refuses to stay down. You don't understand, Magnus. Your reign is past. Your day is done. We have been saying it for some time, and now it's finally absolutely true. This is the age of apocalypse. They said it. Oh, they said boy, it. Oh, boy. There it is. <laughs> apocalypse pipes up. <clears throat> he knows. Uh, how, do, how do I do his voice again? <laughs> <laughs> he knows, Holocaust. Stare into his eyes. Look for that trademark dire of defiance. See instead the smoldering ash of defeat. And Apocalypse checks in with Rex to ensure the trap is set. Magneto is taken aback. He goes, trap? Of course, Magneto. You don't think for a moment that I'd let you die alone without your beloved X-Men at your side, uh uh-huh. <laughs> now, Magneto is not worried by this. He's certain that the X-Men wouldn't throw away all of their plans just to save him. Well, about that, I have my trap, Magnus, and you are in the beat. But the other shoe is about to drop. You think you have secrets. You are wrong. Once my Madri siphoned Bishop's memories, I learned your biggest secret, that there is apparently a world beyond the one we know. A world, or better yet, a timeline, uh-huh, that would have been, in your words, brighter and more hopeful had history run differently. Dig it! And here, Apocalypse is standing on a hill of skulls, and, you know, he looks very angry and, you know, defiant, or I guess ma- magnificent would be the word really here. He looks That's like a good he's, he's running the show. He then continues his uh, little speech. The Shadow King has seen glimpses of this world. He has told me the most important thing about it. It is one in which I do not rule. Your ultimate goal is to somehow fix history, undo all that I have done, even as I stand on the cusp of total world domination. I can hardly let that happen. In fact, I can make it impossible. Uh Uh-oh. Then Apocalypse reveals that he has... The M-Cran Crystal. The X-Men will come, Magneto. Not for you, but because they believe they can use the self-regenerating crystal to repair time. And then uh, Apocalypse cracks Magneto in the mush with a, uh, well, you know, a, a crack, basically. And take this world away from me. Now we shift scenes outside where Angel approaches. He's halted by a guard who actually shouts halt and says, What do you want, pretty boy? Apocalypse isn't welcoming visitors. Angel informs the guards that he's here to rescue the kidnapped Karma, and also... I wasn't asking permission, you troll. And with that, Angel kills the infant guards. Joke's on him, though. It was Karma in that armor. Hey, that almost rhymes. Yeah, Karma Arma, Karma Arma. (laughs) Uh, Angel pulls her lifeless body out of the infinite suit and vows to make Apocalypse pay for what he's done. Elsewhere, the X-Men blink into the pens, courtesy of, you know, blink. That's the one. Uh, yeah. The woman, yes. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and if the art is anything to go by, man, these guys are steaming mad. These some scowls. <laughs> <laughs> now, the X-Men roll call right now includes Iceman, Rogue, Colossus, Ilyana, Destiny, Nightcrawler, Jubilee, Gambit, Blink, Quicksilver, Shadowcat, and, of course, Bishop. Uh, they're pretty surprised to find nobody's guarding the pens. 
at this point, Rogue suggests maybe they just got lucky, and uh, that's not good enough for Colossus. No, he says, Look, you're not about to risk my sister's life on a mission fueled by fortune, Rogue. I demand to know what happened here. So uh, he'd rather they, like, fought their way in? That is the way of, of Colossus, if you think about it. I guess so. He's punch that wall. Constantly in. tortured, <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Gambit's looking around, and he might have found some answers. Oh, well, an answer. Uh, he drags the limp body of McCoy, the dark beast, from the shadows. And Rogue says, "What? What is it? A man? Or some sort of beast? And McCoy, with his, uh, as really injured, says, a little, little of both. Heaven help me. The prisoners, they rebelled. I thought I was the god king of their world, but I was blinded by pride. And in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. That is like the worst analogy ever, right? Yeah. The, like, I, I guess you mentioned one eye so you can provide us with a nice segue over to Cyclops and Jean Grey, yeah. who have uh, led the human prisoners from the pens out onto the streets and hopefully across the bridge to the home of the free, New Jersey. Oh, that's where we all want to be. <laughs> uh, what they don't know, though, is that they are being watched at this moment by Havoc. Another mm. Summers is his... Uh, we rejoin the X-Men in the tunnels below Apocalypse's palace. Through a grate above them, we can, they can see Angel flying toward the palace with bombs strapped to his waist. Now, Warren manages to destroy Apocalypse's force field generator and also himself. Uh, we'll just let the caption tell it. <laughs> Warren Worthington will not be mourned. Eh, it sounds about right. Yeah, I'm um, not bothered by it. Yeah. <laughs> now, Ward's sacrifice did, however, enable a new player to enter the mix. This is X-Man, Nate Gray. Yeah, back inside, Apocalypse gives Magneto a taste of his own medicine by refusing to shut up. <laughs> the game always goes to those best prepared, Magneto. Just hours ago, my Madri warned me that the crystal might threaten my centuries-old plans. If I were foolish enough to allow your X-Men near it, which I'm not, as always, the world turns on my vision, and everything moves according to me. And Thankfully, he's interrupted by some two-hooded goofball yelling, No! <laughs> and this is one of the Shadow King's hosts, apparently, and he reveals that Apocalypse's Southwest Kingdom is gone. Rex corroborates that story. My lord, it, it's true. Somehow the Eurasian High Council managed to set off their bombs from within North America, the entire Midwest. It's now a radioactive crater. And Magneto, he's not digging the sound of that news. Good God! Millions of lives. You madmen. What have you done? What have you done? The question, Magnus, is rather, what must we do to retaliate? Rex, expand the seawall defense grid across the Atlantic. Now! Ah, the good old seawall defense grid. We covered Mm -hmm. that last episode when we discussed X-Universe number two. Told you they would eventually make more sense out of that, sort of, kind of, a little bit. Now, that episode is, of course, available in the archives. Now, Apocalypse blasts Magneto, probably for being annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then Apocalypse himself gets, himself gets blasted, possibly for being oh, even God. more annoying. God, there's be so much blasting. <laughs> uh, Holocaust takes this opportunity to say, Who? It's Nate Gray. The nail in your coffin, Apocalypse. 
Magneto recognizes Nate as the very mutant Forge promised he would someday deliver. Stay down, old man. This isn't your fight anymore. Now, Magneto, who has somehow located his helmet between panels, says, (laughs) (laughs) Think again. You've just bought the universe a few precious seconds, boy. Together, let's make the most of them. And now we pop down to the crystal chamber below. Didn't even realize Apocalypse had one of these, but that's nice. That's very cute. Uh, There, the X-Men beat up a bunch of guards, and worth noting, despite Quicksilver's argument to the contrary, Iceman is carrying McCoy along with them. Mm-hmm. Now, after the dust settles, Destiny is finally able to uh, uh, interface with the Emkron crystal. At their approach, the crystal glows ever brighter, grows ever larger and larger, its light burning even the eyes of the blind, as Destiny, whose second sight allows her to glimpse alternate realities, finds herself staggered by vision upon vision. Each facet of the vast gem reflects a sliver of history from a timeline not hers. From the looks of it, she's seeing the events of Legion Quest, which we covered way back in episode 100. (laughs) It feels way back, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. (laughs) Uh, And she knows, once and for all, that every word of the mysterious Bishop's story has been... True. God help us all. Time is broken. The child Ileana and I have no choice but to facilitate Bishop's journey into the past so that he may repair the continuum. Well, I mean... We, we could have told you that much. We kind of, we, that's sort of the like story we've been months reading. months ago, yeah. yeah, we've, yeah. Been, we've known this for a long <laughs> while. Uh, Quicksilver suggests assembling a support team for the time travel, but Destiny says there's only room for three. Well, actually, only room for folks without a counterpart in the Prime Universe, which only allows for the, a three of their number to head back, which, you know, Destiny in the real world is dead. Mm-hmm. Magic is dead. Bishop... Well, this is that same, same Bishop. Guy, yeah, so. So there. <laughs> uh, now, upon hearing that magic is dead, Colossus is a bit bummed out that his, you know, 616 sis is no more. Yeah, he doesn't want to know how he's doing there right now, but that's another, mm-hmm. we'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> suddenly, Nate and Holocaust burst through a wall above the crystal chamber. Rogue hops to and lends a hand until Magneto shows up. Beloved, no, do not interfere. He then restates their mission, which is fixing reality, bringing back the world that should have been. He then heads over to Ileana. That chance, little one, lies solely with you. I cannot command you to help us, child. I can only tell you that that we cannot create this better place without you. And after finding out that his, this new world is one without a sugar man, she gives the thumb, thumbs up. Yeah, kid, about about that sugar, man. I don't, that's a spoiler <laughs> alert. Let's not reveal that yet. Now, after a large explosion, Bishop realizes that time is short and getting shorter by the second. If they're going to make a run for it, it's got to be now. And so Bishop, Ilyana, and Destiny make a mad dash into the Emkron crystal. <laughs> Colossus says, You sent my sister to her death, Magnus. You had best pray that your decision is worthwhile, or so help me. In any world, in any time, we will be enemies forever. Gotta say, that statement would have carried a little bit more oomph in it yeah. with, uh, if, you know, if the Prime Universe Colossus wasn't currently one of Magneto's acolytes. Yeah, whoopsie, you're gonna find you out. Gonna All right. <laughs> uh, down below, it looks like more X-Men have arrived, including Morph, Sabretooth, and Wildchild. Uh, they're taking it to Apocalypse's hordes, uh, facilitating the Emkron Traveler's safe passage. And outside, Jean Grey realizes that nuclear bombs have destroyed the Midwest. 
She and Cyclops try to process the enormity of the loss. Weapon X parachutes in behind them, and back inside, Holocaust blasts Nate. He takes offense at the idea that Nate thinks he's in the same league as his father. Nate promises to kick it up a notch. It's time for the main event, but first... And here's here we begin the countdown, folks. Back outside, it's Armageddon minus 30 minutes. The X-Men continue fighting back the hordes. Nobody notices when the Sugar Man bounces out of Colossus's boot, where apparently he'd been hiding since the end of Generation X number four. That's, you know, it's a good place to be. It is. Uh, we covered that in episode 102. Now the Sugar Man bounds over to the Emcron crystal and hops on in. At this point, Colossus decides, uh, you know what? It might really suck to stick around on his doom timeline, so then he rushes towards the crystal. Uh, Iceman stops him before taking the plunge. Colossus then lashes out, shattering poor Bobby's body everywhere. Oh. Uh, Gambit then blasts Colossus in the back. Yeah, he says, only way you gotta muck up things, home, and that's good. That's over. Both are dead bodies. We jump inside the crystal where Destiny sees bits and pieces from the Prime Universe in the facets and shards. She asks Ilyana to use her, as of now, unknown abilities to open a doorway for Bishop. And after opening her mind, Ilyana's able to do this. And Destiny goes, imagine a doorway and one will appear. Oh! For Bishop, but not for us. Say farewell, child. Goodbye, Mr. Bishop, and good luck. With that... Bishop steps through. Armageddon minus 25 minutes. We hop over to London, where Mora and Bolivar Trask hold each other for one final time. They know that Apocalypse's seawall defense is about to wipe them out. Is, uh, what now? Anyway, uh, Armageddon minus <laughs> 20. Thing, yeah. <laughs> All right. Armageddon minus 20. Apocalypse is knocked down by an explosive shakoom. And when the dust settles, he sees Magneto and Rogue st- stand before him. Magneto uses his powers to create a sort of armor out of the nearby machinery. You return, and I thought you were a coward. No, no more than you are a genius. Survival of the fittest, indeed. You preen and posture as if you were the first dictator to discover the concept and stake the world's fate on its nonsense. As a child, I heard the very same babble from a Berlin house painter, a madman whose Aryan race tried to wipe out all it deemed dirty or impure. And do you remember who won that war he began? The weak, who rose in righteous triumph. That was the, um, that was the Germans? No, the, the other guys, the other guys, sorry, okay, sorry. Uh, and with a punch... <laughs> to overthrow the strong once and for all. As Magneto goes in for another punch, he is stopped now by Rogue. Magneto looks up to see Guido holding his son. Young Charles begs his parent to save him. Apocalypse rises with a smirk on his face. Armageddon minus 15. We're back outside on the bridge. Logan finds Jean. Just in time to witness Havoc fatally blasting her in the back. Yeah, kind of sucks. Alex then turns his attention toward his brother Scott. Yeah, Havoc says, Uh, Imagine that, big brother. The Summers actually had something in common after all. Uh, We both had an eye for traitorous redheads. Scott informs Alex that killing Jean was the dumbest thing to do, as she was, uh... Well, we'll just let him tell it. Alex, you idiot! Jean's power was the only thing keeping the bombs at bay. Now, thanks to you, there's no more time. For God's sake, Alex, is dying the only thing we'll ever do together? Yeah, at least we're gonna have some fun. Anyway, so the Summerses, (laughs) 
proceed to blast at one another, even though they're immune to each other's power. But somehow Scott still somehow dies from it. Right. All right. He just gave up, I think. He was like, screw this, I'm dead anyway. Uh, then Logan takes the opportunity to gut havoc like a fish, and he then sits with the bodies of Gene and the Summerses, awaiting the inevitable. Armageddon, minus 10. Now we're back in the real world, 20 years in the past. Uh, Bishop made his trek through the Emkron Crystal and has arrived just moments before Legion accidentally kills Xavier. He charges in to stop the event from occurring, only he's stopped by his younger self. Oh, this is going to get not confusing at all. Uh, (laughs) Young Bishop says, Hold it right there! I don't know who you are, but... Old Bishop says, Don't you... Armageddon minus eight. We're back in the present in the Age of Apocalypse world. Morph gets blasted by some off-panel baddie. Uh, McCoy, the Dark Beast, uses this distraction to head into a conveniently placed teleporter that sends him directly into the Emkron Crystal. All right. Armageddon minus five. Outside, Gambit and Colossus continue to fight. Shadowcat steps in the way of a Colossus punch and doesn't phase, trusting him to pull his punch. But he doesn't pull his punch and instead puts a great big hole in his wife. He doesn't get much time to mourn, however, as Gambit nails him with some charged debris. Don't worry, um, where she's gone, I make sure you'll be right behind her. Dude, like, she just died. I'm not even sure she's dead yet. I, really? She's probably still a little Cold. bit... Some motor yeah. functions She's there. twitching, I'm sure. <laughs> now, <laughs> this blast of debris is enough to kill Colossus, and he passes just as Ilyana returns from inside the crystal with news of her success. He says she. He says he's scared, and now she's scared. Uh, Quicksilver rushes in to save her from being nabbed by the Horde, because that's what Quicksilver does. Mm. Armageddon minus four. Rogue beats the holy hell out of Guido and reclaims her son. Apocalypse is able to knock Magneto down long enough to run away, hopeful that he will be able to enter the Emkron Crystal and overtake whatever new world lay behind beyond it. Uh, Nate Gray has different plans and manages to snag the Crystal Shard, and then he delivers one hell of a kick. This one's for Forge. Armageddon minus three. We're back in the 616 and the Bishop's fight. The old Bishop says... I have no time to explain, no time at all, but for God's sake, no matter what happens to you from this time forward, remember this moment. We see Legion holding his psionic blade up to Magneto. He says, uh, goodbye, Eric Magnus Lencher. I hope that in death you find the peace you've been missing in life. And Legion's cut off by Bishop shouting his name. David, uh, no. David, who knows my name? And Bishop lunges for Legion, but the kid just won't quit. Finally, Bishop grabs Legion's side knife and plunges it into his own chest. He uses his powers to create a sort of psychic feedback loop that only one of them will survive. David sees everything that Bishop lived through over the past two decades and powers down. In your mind, I, I, I saw tomorrow. It was terrible, horrible. It was it was my fault. She just tried to fix things, give my father his dream. Never meant to screw it up. I know, David, uh, but you did. You turned it into a nightmare. And now, as your own energies consume you, you pay the price for your folly. I, too, fade, and with me, 
all memory of your crime. You had the potential to be the greatest of us all, David. Instead, twisted with that hatred, you squandered your power. Your father would not be proud. Yeah, Bishop, uh, you make a good counselor, right? Lord! (laughs) I guess as the world's going away, screw you too, you know? (laughs) And with that, Legion and the old bishop vanish. Our four time-displaced X-Men, that's Storm, Iceman, Psylocke, and Young Bishop, in case you forgot, because, I mean, we last talked about them like a hundred weeks ago. That's right, I did they, actually forget, so thank you. <laughs> they're confused at their sudden victory. They're probably also confused that they just got sucked back through time to the present. Or, you know, the real The present. real present, yeah. Uh, still in the past, though, Xavier, Magneto, and Gabrielle Haller feel some weird time-streaminess. Yes, Magneto goes, Charles, what's happening? I feel as if I'm being pulled backwards. It's the time stream, Eric, sub now. It's rebuilding itself, that young man. Gabby cuts him off and goes, Said something about being my son, Charles. Someone did, I'd swear to it. And yet there is no one here. Do you remember being in any danger, Gabby? I don't... All I feel really is a loss. Almost maternal. That I can't explain. Armageddon minus two. Back in the Age of Apocalypse, Magneto and Nate combine their powers to pummel Apocalypse. Holocaust sneaks in to break Nate's concentration, and Nate's all screw this and plunges himself into the Mkron crystal shard. Oh, he's plunged it into Holocaust's chest, and then they both vanish. This mm. leaves only Apocalypse and Magneto left. Be them no mind, Magnus. They're finished. The end game is yours and mine alone. Uh-huh. This is no time to disappoint me. Fight back. Why won't you fight back? I I can't. I'm concentrating. And with that, Magneto tears Apocalypse in two. <laughs> That's all <laughs> he was done doing. done that ages ago? Oh, he was he had to concentrate. Ages of Apocalypse yeah, ago? Right. <laughs> uh, Apocalypse not going to get off that easy, though. Time for another Magneto monologue. For 20 years, you've gone on about how only the strong survive. Tell me again, Apocalypse, just how strong you are. We were the mightiest of our race, Apocalypse. Suppose we had been on the same side. What a world we would have had. Does this mean there's a world where Magneto stares lonely at a photo of Apocalypse in his off time and just thinks... Gotta be. Gotta be. Same kind of thing. You know, just like, oh, what might have been? Uh, (laughs) Now, Armageddon minus one. Magneto watches as the bombs come closer. He's approached by Rogue and little Charles. You didn't think we were going to skip Magneto's last monologue, did you? Come on now. (laughs) It's over, my love. Apocalypse is dead. And with him, his world. Our world. No, no, this was never our place, never our time. Not really. And if Bishop did his job, we will be but memories by the time the bombs fall. Come to me, my wife, my son. Let me love you before time slips away. Everything depends on Bishop. Do you think he was able to set things right? We can hope. And if I've earned nothing else, we have earned that right. And I would never have believed until I met you, beloved, that hope would be so dear to me. But then, a good man, mm-hmm, once gave me faith oh, that right. all things were possible. <laughs> the bombs land, but not even that will stop our man from his talking. He preached a dream of harmony and told me that any dream worth having was a dream worth fighting for. He taught me well. 
Had I had these years to live over again, I might have made other choices. I might have done many things differently, but I never would have stopped fighting for the dream. That is your legacy, Charles Xavier. Now, as I hold my family to me before the end, I thank you for changing my life. Zero. And that is it for the Age of Apocalypse proper. Mm-hmm. But of course we want to know what's going on now in the right. Prime universe. So we're going to find out right here in X-Men Prime number one, July 1995, cover date. Title The, the story is titled Racing the Night, written by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza. Pencils by Brian Hitch, Jeff Matsuda, Gary Frank, Mike McCone, Terry Dodson, Ben Herrera, and Paul Pelletier. Inked by Al Milgram, P. Craig Russell, Cam Smith, Mark Farmer, Mark McKenna, Tom Palmer, Tim Townsend, and Hector Calazzo. That's quite an art team, boy. Uh, Letters by Richard Starkins and Comicraft. Colors by Steve Bucciolato and Electric Crayon. Edited-in-chief by Bob Harris. This one was a less of a huge Mungo book as the other one. It was... Um, oh, it actually was bigger, it looks like. Cover price. It was. It had like it had like one of those like see-through uh, covers. Oh wow. Yeah. There you go. You got you got the uh yeah, the print over clear plastic. That's gonna cost yeah. a lot of money. That was a four ninety-five USD six ninety-five Canadian. And now we open the issue, we're back to reality just after we left, uh for us six weeks ago, or mm-hmm. you know, but for <laughs> everyone else a couple of months. Uh, issue opens with Jean Grey stomping the school grounds, and she comes across Wolverine. This is a bone-clawed Wolverine, a bone-clawed Wolverine who made it clear he won't go back inside the Institute so long as Sabretooth is being kept there. And Xavier took Sabretooth in to attempt to rehabilitate him in X-Men Unlimited number 3, uh, the December 1993 cover date. Inside the mansion, the professor and Bishop are chatting. Bishop claims that, since returning from the past, he's having nightmares that feel more to him like memories. It's as if someone tried to cram years uh, of vague recollections into my head. Xavier kind of waves it off. He blames it on Bishop already being a time anomaly. Yeah, pretty much. You're always, something weird's always happening, Bishop. <laughs> every, every single day it's something new. Uh, now, uh, we shift scenes to a train station in Yonkers, uh, where we meet a young man named Dennis Hogan. Uh, he's recently discovered that he's a mutant, and he's hoping to reach the Xavier Institute in Salem Center in order to get some help. Over in Manhattan, CBNC reporter and on-again, off-again main squeeze to the beast, Trish Tilby is preparing for a broadcast. Her first appearance was X-Factor number 7, August 1986, cover date, created by Louise Simonson and Butch Geis. Geis, Geis, Geis. One of those. And uh, she's a reporter for CBNC and an on-again, off-again girlfriend to Hank McCoy, just like we hey. said. <laughs> Not much more to say about it. Worth noting, though, they met and started dating while Beast was back in his human, that is his non-furry form, and stuck around during his change back to the Blue Beast we all know, so bless her heart. Well, yeah. he, he, probably gets, he probably is soft like a kitty, I have a feeling, that's why. <laughs> uh, today's leading story, the mutant plague known as the Legacy Virus. Mm. And now we jump over to Wyoming to catch up with X-Factor. Forge, Val Cooper, Havoc, and Polaris are searching for Mystique at the Bell, Bell Force River Dam, which uh, she's apparently trying to blow up. Mystique is fleeing through a nearby cave when she's confronted by a large shape. It slashes at her and says, It begins before vanishing. And X-Factor finds her laying prone. 
Back at Xavier's, Beast and Cyclops are preparing dinner. Uh, we've got Beast tossing a salad with his feet. Ew. So, uh, yeah, if Hank McCoy offers you a salad, just uh, politely yeah, decline. Uh, we're good. <laughs> or just make sure you're sitting by a potted plant or something. <laughs> uh, now, they talk about Gambit being comatose because Gambit and Rogue kissed as the crystal wave overcame Earth back in X-Men Volume 2, number 41, the lead-up to the Age of Apocalypse there. And this kiss left him comatose. Probably, uh, probably with a smile on his face, yep. though. Uh, kiss was a long time coming. Uh, Bishop enters the kitchen, and he flashes back to the Age of Apocalypse. <laughs> so instead of seeing his teammate Scott and Hank, instead he sees Prelate Summers and the Dark Beast. He draws his gun and lunges at them while referring to them as butchers. Scott is able to zack the blaster out of Bishop's hands before he can do much damage. Uh, they're finally able to restrain Bishop, who wonders aloud what is happening to him. I can't get over the NAM, man. I can't get over it. Uh, <laughs> now back to Yankees. Uh, Dennis Hogan stops at a diner. He eats, as he eats his soup, we can see that his right hand has begun to morph. It's turned green and scaly. He worries about causing a stir and hopes the X-Men will be able to help him. Then we go over to a drainage pipe by the George Washington Bridge where a bum named Jim Davis... The creator of Garfield? That's right, the very same one. He follows a light inside the pipe and winds up getting murdered by Morlock G-Nation member Marrow. And she promises something big is coming, which will be followed up on the, in, uh, followed up on in the pages of Uncanny X-Men. And while we're here, let's meet Marrow. Sure. Real name, Sarah something. Uh, first appearance, Cable number 15, September 1994 cover date, created by Jeff Loeb and David Brewer. She's a Morlock who was part of that whole ridiculous hill thing that Mikhail Rasputin did during the Storm miniseries. Um, now, she'd eventually be revealed as having been present and rescued by Gambit during the Mutant Massacre, and also as having two hearts after surviving Storm yanking one of them out of her chest. Now, that'll happen in Uncanny X-Men 325 in a few months. I'll tell you, some people have all the luck. They got two hearts. They're getting rescued right, right at the last second. It's just uh, <laughs> fortune shines upon her. Yes. Now, uh, back to Xavier's. We got Cyclops, Beast, and Bishop head to the Med Ward, where they find Storm attending to the comatose Gambit. They drop off some dinner for Storm and head into another room to perform a battery of tests on Bishop. At his insistence, that is, Scott and Hank think it's a terrible idea, and uh, they're probably right. Another terrible idea, don't eat that salad. No, definitely no. not. <laughs> it's a cuticle in here. Um, we, jump, <laughs> we jump over to Key Largo, Florida, where Rogue and Iceman are out at a club. Rogue is dancing away her troubles. Remember, she did just drop Gambit into a coma. Mm. Uh, now, she's dancing while Iceman looks on. Now, they were sort of dosy doing with the idea of, like, a rogue Gambit-Iceman love triangle around now. Yeah, and then, oh, Ice, you know, Iceman thinks Gambit's the man and stuff. I know that, but it never really happened, did it? Yeah. <laughs> now, some dude approaches Rogue and uh, looks to be getting a little bit handsy. Iceman makes him slip so Rogue doesn't inadvertently suck up all of his energy. Uh, it's worth noting here, Rogue has a whole lot of skin showing, which yeah. uh, is what? a pretty dumb idea considering her powers. Yeah, I mean, that's just a danger to, to people right here. You to know? everybody, everything. I mean, if a mosquito lands on her, what happens? I don't know. Uh, now, lucky for them, they happen to be in one of those real hip and happening nightclubs that have TVs on the wall that uh, play the evening news. Oh, I love clubs like that, right? You yeah, they're always the best. To flip on MSNBC while I'm right. boogieing away, yeah. <laughs> now, what they see is Trish Tilby... Talking about the legacy virus, she takes it public. Uh-oh. They're also watching the same report several other places, such as the Massachusetts Academy, home of Generation X. They ain't happy. 
the Washington, D.C. offices of Senator Robert Kelly. He's really, really annoyed. He's quite enraged. He calls his government liaisons an X-Factor, hoping to get some answers. The Muir Island Mutant Research Center. Just as Maura McTaggart's name is dropped in the news report. Very good coincidence there. Yeah. Uh, and also at that same Yonkis Diner. Yeah, fomenting a whole lot of fear, panic, and confusion among the patrons. But also give us a little joke you can try at your next party. Uh, yeah. It's, what do you call a dead mutant on the bottom of the Hudson River? A start. <laughs> hmm, does it have to be the Hudson? It is kind of specific for a hate-fueled joke, isn't it? Yeah. I guess you got to know your audience. I guess, you know, it's, it's different places. You might pick a different river, you know, make sure, sure. you know where you are. So, uh, anywho, Dennis slinks out of the diner, and uh, it didn't go unnoticed. Some of the other diner patrons suggest he might have left because he's a mutant, which is a pretty strong conclusion to jump, <laughs> jump to, but I, I guess that's the panic and fear we're talking about. Yes. Uh, now, finally, uh, they're viewing this at the X-Mansion, and the X-Men are not happy. Uh, Beast takes it especially bad, considering that it was his girlfriend that just sold them out on national television. He stomps out of the room, hopeful for a confrontation and some answers. Uh, Xavier asks Scott to contact Cable. Just then, Xavier is overcome by intense energy, the likes of which he's never felt before. And that's because at that very moment, Nate Gray has landed in the prime Earth. Ooh. In Switzerland, to be a bit more precise, somewhere in Switzerland, to be exactly precise. Uh, <laughs> now, Cable's, Cable's bug-eyed buddy Blacksmith, though we don't know that yet, notices the temporal rift. The Blacksmith, his first appearance is right here, created by Jeff Loeb and Ian Churchill, a member of the Ascani from the far-flung future. Uh, we just don't know any of that yet. He's brand no. new, so we're meeting him here. Uh, we next shift over to England, where M-Plate arrives at a Potch mansion looking to speak with Lady Gail Edgerton. M-Plate, real name, Marius St. Croix. First appearance, Generation X number 1, November 1994, cover date. Created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Pichalo. He's the brother of Monet and the M-Twins. He's also responsible for trapping Monet into the mute diamond-skinned penance, but uh, we, we don't know that yet. All, right. uh, all we really know at this point is that M-Plate feeds off of mutant bone marrow. Back to the story, the butler, a butler named Niles escorts him into the den. Gale runs, th runs him through with a fireplace poker, and it's not terribly effective. Which is to say, not effective in the slightest. No. Uh, he tells her that they have a mutual friend, Jonathan Starsmore. That's Chamber of Generation X. Believe it or not, this will be followed up in... Generation X. Oh, that would have mighty guessed that. My fifth, hmm. my fifth or sixth guess. Yeah. Uh, back in Yonkers, Dennis Hogan runs alongside some train tracks, and he trips over his own feet, and soon finds himself surrounded by those douches from the diner. At this point, Dennis has completely transformed. He looks kind of like a shrunken-headed Frankenstein with Doug Funny hair. They beat the holy hell out of him with baseball bats, but he manages still to get away. Jump back to the mansion where Storm and Professor X are about to have a tea party. Until uh, Xavier senses the danger young Dennis Hogan is currently in. He asks Storm to bring him a few miles north, and then telepathically contacts the rest of the X-Men along the way. We shift scenes completely to Murder World, which is currently the base of operations for X-Force. Now, X-Force consists of Cable, Siren, Cannonball, Richter, Warpath, Shatterstar, Boomer, Sunspot, and Domino. Whew, now, of those we haven't met yet, we've got Boomer, formerly known as the Justice Silly Boom Boom. Uh, <laughs> she was a sweat hog. Uh, real, name, <laughs> real name, Tabitha Smith. First appearance, Secret Wars 2, number 5. Wow. November 1985, cover date, created by Jim Shooter and Al Milgram. 
Now, after discovering she was a mutant with the power to create time bombs, she ran away from home. Kind of hinted at that her father might have pimped her out. Uh, she'd meet the Beyonder, who would take her to Xavier's school. Now, Xavier's school would not so much reject her, but they kind of had their hands full with this whole Secret Wars thing, so she wasn't their first priority. So Tabitha went back to the streets. Now, after the Secret Wars, she'd be recruited by the Vanisher into the Fallen Angels team, and she'd eventually get captured by anti-mutant outfit The Right. Uh, X-Factor would rescue her from there, and she would join the X-Terminators. From one ragtag weirdo group to another, that's uh, where Boomer and Boom Boom belongs. She'd eventually join the, uh, well, I mean, not the big leagues, but X-Men's AAA farm team, the New Mutants, which is almost the big leagues, uh, which led her to X-Force. And she's romantically linked to Sam Cannonball Guthrie. A Shatterstar, real name, though we don't know it yet at the time of this uh, comic, is Gavrita Seven. First appearance, New Mutants number 99, March 1991, created by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza. He hails from a future version of Mojo World, though I don't think we know that yet either at this point. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we know very little about this fella this time. He would eventually be revealed that Shatterstar is sort of kind of Longshot's father, who in turn then became sort of kind of Shatterstar's father. So, uh... Yeah, yeah, that's how that works. Sure, a, gen- a genetic Ouroboros or whatever it is. Man. It's <laughs> yeah. just a real nutty situation. It made perfect sense while I was reading it, but uh, but saying it aloud, you're like, wait, how did that work? Yeah, <laughs> seeing it in print like that, it's kind of tough. Uh, we also have Warpath, real name James Proudstar. First appearance, New Mutants number sixteen, June nineteen eighty four, cover date created by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema. He's the younger brother of John Thunderbird Proudstar. That's the uh, the one X Man who died very early on in the all-new, all-different era. Uh, James would join up with the Hellions in order to exact revenge for his brother's death. He's eventually set straight by Professor X, however, he declines membership into the New Mutants. He would eventually join the good guys during the transition to X-Force. Back to the story, the X-Force folks train. While they train, a a hologram of Arcade appears. Remember, Arcade is the proprietor of Murder World. Right. Uh, And soon after, the place goes boom. As the dust settles, X-Force finds themselves approached by Cyclops. Now, they're informed that Professor X would like a word with them, and they are more than happy to come along. I mean, why do they think they could just move into a murder world and leave it as a base <laughs> right? of operations and be like, ah, he won't notice us. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> this is a real danger room. You know, that's like that's like using, you know, the, the, the Joker's lair as, like, your uh, where you store your candy <laughs> or something. So, uh, back in Wyoming with, the, with X-Factor, uh, Forge appears to flip the hell out and kicks Val Cooper in the head. Or, you know, that member of the team who can shapeshift, you know, the real Val Cooper, you know, we might be morph. Uh, the real Val Cooper emerges from the cave, just as the fake one reverts to the unconscious mystique. Havoc begins to pulsate and explodes and takes the dam with him. This story will continue in the pages of X-Factor. Off to Hammer Bay in Genosha, Excalibur members Kitty, Douglock, and Pete Wisdom are doing some research on dead mutates. Uh, Pete Wisdom, by the way, first appearance was Excalibur 86, February 1995, cover date, created by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. You mean to tell me that a perpetually snarky, chain-smoking Brit who's often shown wearing a trench coat was created by Warren Ellis? That is a shocker, right? I think Isn't it? I gotta be honest, I would have never expected it, but yeah, that's like <laughs> one of his five archetypes. Anyway, so uh, he was pretty much brand new at this point, only first appearing just as the Age of Apocalypse was starting. Uh, the character was initially pitched to Trident Comics for a series to be titled uh, Electric Angel. 
Ellis states that he was based on Jack Regan from the ITV series The Sweeney, which ran from 1975 to 1978. Wisdom would eventually bang Kitty Pride, All right. which is apparently a bone of contention with Chris Claremont, who, upon his return to the X-Books, had Kitty proclaim that she's just 16 years old. <clears throat> Leave her alone, they said. That's old enough um, in the UK, mate, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yes, that's a banging good idea. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, they don't realize, uh, this back to the story, they don't realize that they're being watched by the very reason behind all these dead mutates, the Sugar Man. Uh-oh! <laughs> now, uh, at the Avalon Space Station, which is the home base of Magneto's acolytes, Colossus, an acolyte, leads a crew into space to examine something glowing in the distance. From inside the base, Exodus requests that they retrieve it and bring it to him. What it is, is Holocaust, sealed in a big old meteor slab of ice. Wow. From here, we jump to the Morlock Tunnels, where Marrow returns and reports into her leader. And uh, we, we hit on three of them so far. Here's the fourth. Her leader is McCoy, the Dark Beast. Oh, no. They're all oh, here. Man. Except for Apocalypse. <laughs> we wrap up back upstate. Dennis Hogan is attempting to flee the crowd, but they've caught up, and they're still keen on using his head for batting practice. Uh, Storm and Xavier show up and scare off the humans, and the rest of the X-Men arrive. However, it's too late. Dennis Hogan is already dead. Well, we hardly knew ye. Uh, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's true. Didn't know you at all. Uh, so that is the official conclusion, right, to the Age of Apocalypse. There's no more. I mean, there is sort of more to say about it later, but... In 1995, that was the end. That was it. That was it. X Men Omega and X Men Prime both hit the shelves on the same day. Wow! So that was so you wrapped it all up in the same day, and then next week Mm -hmm. you move on to uh, new X Men stuff. Uh, We're gonna Mm -hmm. wrap up just a couple of the creators, which really are the, I guess we're gonna say architects for this whole thing. Sure. Uh, Scott Lobdell. After this, he did Onslaught, which is also likely uh, worth an entire series of episodes. Just not anytime soon after this six <laughs> six episode uh, behemoth. Uh, in brief, brief though, he a creature called Onslaught, which was the mixed consciousness of Professor X and Magneto, takes on the entire Marvel universe to defeat the baddie. The Avengers of Fantastic Four sacrifice themselves. Uh, they, of course, wind up in a pocket universe for Heroes Reborn year. That's a whole other thing. Uh, Lobdell was responsible for much of the planning and execution of this storyline and wrote the bookend one-shots that was Onslaught X-Men and Onslaught Marvel Universe. He also did work on Heroes Return after the Heroes Reborn mess wrapped up. Lobdell was named writer of the returning Fantastic Four. He only lasted a handful of issues before being replaced by Chris Claremont. If folks thought Lobdell made the FF X-Meny, Wait till they get a load of what Claremont will bring to the table, boy. Ooh-y. Oh, boy. Uh, now, Lobdell would be ousted from the X-Books. Uh, not much has been said publicly about his sort of abrupt departure from the X-Books. Yeah. Uh, we've heard that his original ending to the crossover, Operation Zero Tolerance, was changed, and uh, that was somewhat controversial. The ending that was went with that they went with was a uh, very safe and sudden. It's uh, after a ton of build, the bad guy just gives up and he turns himself over to the authorities. So, uh, gotta wonder what Lobdell might have had in mind instead of that. Uh, now, the later years of Lobdell's run appeared to be leading up to a huge reveal about Gambit's history. This would be ultimately revealed in Uncanny X-Men 350, which is the first issue of Uncanny X-Men to ship in quite a while without Lobdell's name anywhere to be found. Huh. 
Uh, now, Gambit was revealed to be instrumental in the Mutant Massacre, which we mentioned in passing several episodes back, so yeah. that was the big reveal there. We'll probably dig into it, that Mutant Massacre more. Oh, did, I think we talked about it a couple of times, touching on different X-Men things in the past. Yeah. That's the... Uh... Mar- the uh, what is the Morlock Island? Massacre, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Wildstorm. Lobdell moved over to Image Comics' Wildstorm imprint, where he wrote some Wildcats comics, including the Wildcats X-Men series of crossovers. So it couldn't have been that bad blood. Something did happen yeah. there, though, where he just, like, walked away from X-Men for some reason. Or Marvel. Uh, Lobdell briefly returned to the main two X-Men titles to tie off some loose ends before Grant Morrison and Joe Casey took over the franchise. Lobdell reestablished Cyclops' place on the team after he merged with Apocalypse during the 12 storyline. He also ended the long, lingering subplot regarding the legacy virus and did so in a way that Colossus sacrificed himself. This was at the start of Casada and, and Gemesis' dead means dead days, so that was intended to stick. No more Colossus. Until some guy who writes about teenage vampire slayers decides he wants to slum it in comics for a bit. And then Colossus comes right back. Right back. Don't know who that is, but we're just, if that happened. If that were to happen, I think that's the way it would turn out. Right. Theoretically. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Slobdell did some work for uh, DC Comics during the New 52. Wrote uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws. This series might have been initially overshadowed by the controversy regarding how Starfire was portrayed. Mm. Uh, Now, this really didn't help a lot of folks' opinion of Mr. Lobdell. No. Uh, He also uh, worked on the Superman family books. Following uh, the revolving door of Superman, volume three writers, DC would finally settle on Lobdell, who had a pretty decent run, I guess. Uh, He also wrote the New 52 volume of Superboy. Teen Titans. Due to the strength of Lobdell's Generation X work, at least one guy was very excited to see him (laughs) announced as as guiding the Teen Titans into the New 52. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. Teen Titans, definitely one of the worst most maligned properties of the new 52 not absolutely not because of just solely of, of scott lobdell but he must take some of the blame along with sure. many others uh now mary now I, it uh, it happened to me or yeah it happened to me i was sexually harassed on stage at a comic convention panel it was a article written by mary naomi am i getting that right yeah. this was so, yeah. this is at the long beach comic-con 2013 the prism comics panel she says Lobdell was seated on a panel featuring LGBT creators, including Mary Naomi, a bisexual woman. Throughout the panel, Lobdell made some odd comments to her. Mm. He asked, are you G-A-Y? When she responds that she is bisexual, he gives her a high five. He makes several mentions of her red lipstick, claiming that it distracts him. <laughs> when her microphone drooped in its holster, uh, Lobdell suggested she stimulated to get it back up. Uh, there was also a story about Mango. A uh, Mango, we don't want to get into it. What we've yeah. already given you is a little weird. A little uh, much, yeah. Lobdell would apologize to Mary both via communication through Heidi McDonald of The Beat, as well as in a written public missive. He claimed it was a failed attempt at humor. Uh, the whole thing sounds like a giant mess. And uh, mm. as of this recording, Lobdell is writing the second volume of Red Hood and the Outlaws for DC Comics. And if I could stump for just a minute, it's pretty good. I'm telling you, it's one mm. of the best things since Rebirth. Between that and New Superman, and my two favorite things, uh, it's consistently good. It's not yep. the best, but it's it's solid, and I recommend it. Quality, yes. Yeah. Uh, now we'll jump over to uh, the other architect, Fabian Nicieza. So we'll wrap him up. Now, after the Age of Apocalypse, but still in 1995, a dispute with uh, then editor in chief Bob Harris over the future direction of his plot lines on X Force made uh, Fabian not so uh, not one of their favorite sons, and he was fired from the X Men titles. 
uh, X-Force, he left with issue 43, February 1995, and then X-Men Volume 2 with issue 45. That was October 1995. Uh, Asked about it later, Fabian would say, I never wanted to leave X-Force. I never felt my firing was justified. I don't recall being given a reason for being fired, and I also don't recall asking for one. Considering it was a top 10 selling title at the time, I felt it was wholly, it was a wholly unjustified decision. After 1995, Nisiesu wrote a few short runs. He did a, a volume of Captain Marvel starring a genus Vell in 1995. Uh, Spider-Man The Final Adventure. Uh, this was a one of the Clone Saga miniseries. Mm. And he would also uh, do a non-Marvel work for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. For the show or the comic or both? I believe the comic. Wow. Yeah, he was a comic. Either way. Uh, yeah. Fabian left Marvel in 1996, did his first work for DC Comics. He co-wrote Justice League Midsummer Nightmare with Mark Wade. Uh, that would relaunch the JLA series. Fabian also worked for Twist and Shout Comics, writing and penciling backup stories in X-Files Special Number 1 and Dirtbag Number 7. Nisieza joined Acclaim Comics as Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief in 1996, and he was tasked with enlivening the acquired properties that used to comprise the Valiant universe for Valiant Comics. If you remember Acclaim Comics, bought Valiant Comics, that's why that happened. Uh, characters such as Solar, Exo Manowar, and Ninjak, and he called it VH2. Nisiezer himself wrote the Turok title, as well as a new series, Troublemakers. And Turok met with success as a video game adaptation, and Nisiezer was promoted to president and publisher of Acclaim Comics in 1997. He also wrote a Turok novella during this period. Now, after deep uh, staff cuts and most of the lines being canceled, uh, Fabian would leave a claim in 1999. Returning to freelance work, he co-wrote the Magneto Wars crossover that ran from uh, Uncanny X-Men 366 and 367 and X-Men Volume 2, 86 and 87. That was along with artist Alan Davis, and that happened in 1999. This will lead to successive Magneto limited series, uh, Magneto Rex in 99, Magneto Dark Seduction 2000. He'd also do the Gambit ongoing series that began in 1999, and he wrote the first 24 issues of its 25-issue run. Wow. That, that 25th issue, Scott Lobdell. Hey! It all comes the around. gang's all here. Yeah. <laughs> also in 1999, Nisiesa began writing Thunderbolts with issue 34 of that series, and he would stick around until issue 75, initially with uh, Mark Bagley on art. Post-issue 75, uh, Thunderbolts fell victim to a Bill Jemis new take, which uh, shifted the book's focus from a superhero title to a title on a underground fight club. Lame. I would think the movie Fight Club probably had something to do with that. I wonder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fabian juggled work from both Marvel and DC at the turn of the 21st century. At Marvel, he wrote Citizen V in 2001, Citizen V and the V Battalion, Everlasting in 2002, X-Men Forever in 2001, and X-Force Volume 2, as well as a short-lived ongoing series, Hawkeye, in 2003. For DC, he wrote the six-issue miniseries Superman of America in 1999, and the Elseworlds Project JLA created Equal in 2000, as well as some of the, some issues of the children's comic Justice League Adventures. Nisi is a co-creator with, with artist Stefano Raphael, a horror miniseries titled The Blackburn Covenant, published by Dark Horse Comics in 2003, and returned to his old pals with Cable and Deadpool that same year, writing all 50 issues of the series. 
In 2006, Nicieza wrote for DC a three-issue arc in Action Comics that was issues 841 through 843, ran July through September 2006 cover dates. It was co-written by Kurt Busiek. Uh, These issues filled time while Jeff Johns and Richard Donner got around to doing Last Sun, which Mm -hmm. was uh, kind of the the, uh, straw that stirred the drink for Superman, but didn't come out very often, so uh, really needed to fill time. Uh, Nicias also wrote JSA Classified, number 28, September 2007 cover date. He was also one of the co-writers for The 99. The 99 comic book created by Naif Al-Mutawa, you think? Mutawa? Yeah, I would say Mutawa. And uh, published by Tish Keel Comics, it featured a team of superheroes with special abilities based on the 99 attributes of Allah in Islam. Uh, he wrote a bunch of Batman-related stuff while Grant Morrison was having a field day with the property, including uh, Red Robin and Azrael, Volume 2. In 2011, DC announced Nicieza would be writing Legion Lost. This is a spinoff of the Legion of Superheroes as part of DC's line-wide New 52 relaunch initiative. Nicieza wrote the first six issues before leaving the title. He's written here and again for DC over the next few years, including a handful of the Convergence tie-ins. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the comics company Shatner Singular, Singularity, there we go, uh, he adapted a Stan Lee poem into the graphic novel Stan Lee's God Woke. That was in 2016. This work would win the 2017 Independent Publisher Book Awards Outstanding Books of the Year Independent Voice Award. Good job. That's a lot of words. Yep, a that was a lot. I know. That was a lot to spill out about Fabian at the end, but we wanted to mm. give him his due, and he has, he has inspired a lot of other creators, and uh, he's just, just a, a journeyman, workhorse kind of fella. Like his, like the cut of Absolutely. his jib. Uh, and Scott Lobdell, too. Uh, these are both... Uh, sure. I like both these guys. But anyway, uh, what were the outcomes of Age of Apocalypse? What were the lasting results besides a handful of weirdos, you know, coming from one <laughs> timeline to the new one? Well, there were some things that, that stuck out. Uh, the title X-Man, uh, Nate Gray, he not only came back to the prime Marvel Universe, he actually received his own ongoing title, continuing the numbering of his initial Age of Apocalypse mini, which ran four issues, so we started with five. Yeah. Uh, it's unknown if this was always the intention, though, with the amount of lead time. It's probable they did have this in mind from the start. Plus, Cable was pretty popular even you know back then, too. Sure. Unfortunately, all of our research on the subject defaults to movie speculation. Thanks, 2018, so mm. <laughs> it's hard to penetrate sometimes backwards. I definitely... We you know well, we know that that pain. challenges. Yeah. Uh, X Man ran for an impressive seventy five issues. A final cover, final issue cover dated May two thousand one. Though the title of his book was X Man, he was only ever referred to by that name during guest appearances in other books, or when someone unfamiliar with the title wrote a fill in. He was always just Nate Gray in the book when people talked yes. to him. Now, upon landing in Prime Earth, he would meet up with an amnesiac, Madeline Pryor. Uh, During his time roaming the Earth, his extremely powerful telepathy adds to the strength of the threat that we would later know as Onslaught. Uh, He'd become pals with Spider-Man, because why not? Sure. Uh, Nice guy, right? Everyone likes Spider-Man. both affable fellas. (laughs) Uh, Now, he'd even team up with his sort of kind of genetic brother Cable on a few occasions. Uh, Nate was chosen by Apocalypse to be his new host body during that swing of a missed storyline known as the Twelve. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Cyclops would take that bullet and briefly become the host for Apocalypse. This was a huge mess, and it was quickly undone. With sales on this title and a few others flagging, Warren Ellis came in to breathe new life into the title, and he wrote a couple of British guys with trench coats. No, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, he did, yes. He did, actually. But, yeah, that wasn't <laughs> the only thing. 
The other titles included in this in his Counter X initiative were Generation X and X Force, both also limping toward cancellation or revamp. Ellis's plan for Nate was to turn him into a mutant sh- shaman. This had potential, but didn't bring in the readers. Nate sacrificed himself to save the world in his final issue by inseminating his genetic code onto all living cells on the planet. Uh, he'd eventually get better from that, though. And uh, during the Dark Rain Not event, uh, that's when it happened, but I think we've talked, taken Nate far enough as we need to. Yeah. Another guy who came through, Holocaust. Now, despite the potential of this character and the pretty cool look, he didn't do a whole heck of a lot in the Prime Universe. Uh, he basically became another, you know, heavy, another villain. Um, he'd eventually join the Exiles, and we'll talk about them more in a little bit. Uh, during this time, he'd return to the Age of, po- Age of Apocalypse reality and die. <laughs> the end, yeah. <laughs> now, the uh, 616 counterpart, you remember, this is an Age of Apocalypse character, so it stands to reason that there is a counterpart on the 616 world. Mm-hmm. This was a character who would be introduced several years later during the Dark Angel saga, and more on that in a little bit, too. And this one had the name Genocide. You know, Holocaust, Genocide, you know, let's, let's split the difference. Sure. Uh, Sugar Man. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Upon arrival in the Prime Universe, Sugar Man falls in with the Gen, gen Engineer in Gen, gen Engineer in Genosha. Genosha. And just like Holocaust, <laughs> Sugar Man didn't really cause much of a splash. He messed with Havoc and Nate Gray a bit, but was returned to the Age of Apocalypse Earth like three or four times. Uh, really not a lot more to say about him than that. Yeah, it's really, uh, really sad uh, for such a such a great character um, <laughs> as the Sugar Man, uh, Dark Beast. He was retroactively revealed as being responsible for the creation of the Morlocks. Now, the Morlocks would be recognized by Mister Sinister as failed experiments utilizing his own theories. Since, of course, McCoy and Sinister worked very closely during the Age of Apocalypse. Cleverly, this revelation would be used as the motivation behind the mutant massacre. So, really nice how they made it all fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really cleverly done. Uh, early on, Dark Beast would kidnap our Beast and briefly take his place on the X-Men. Uh, to keep up with the root, he, he would keep up with his ruse until the onslaught event where he threw in with a big O. Uh, he would fall to being a background player in the years that followed, Returned into the Age of Apocalypse a couple of times and also died and returned a bunch, too, because that's just what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last character who made it through uh, eventually was Nightcrawler, but more on that in a little bit. Yeah, we'll go back to uh, the other fallout from Age of Apocalypse. There was This uh, thing was revisited more than a bunch of times, really. Yeah. We had Tales of the Age of Apocalypse. This was a couple of prequels. I guess they would have had to have been, right? You just wait, just wait. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, taking place before X-Men Chronicles and something we probably could have included if we wanted to do bios for about a dozen Inhumans, uh, which we did not ever. No, no, no. It ran two issues, December 1996, December 1997 cover dates, and it was written by Scott Lobdell, Ralph Macchio, John Francis Moore, and Brian K. Vaughn. We got Blink, a four-issue miniseries that ran March through June 2001, written by Scott Lobdell and Judd Winnick, with art by Trevor McCarthy. Uh, now, for whatever reason, Blink became something of a cult favorite among the fandom. I, I don't get it, but mm. it's something that happened. Uh, despite only appearing in a handful of issues, Blink even received an action figure as part of Marvel's Most Wanted series back in 1998. That's back before... Everybody had an action figure. This was, wow. you know, you had to be kind of kind of special or, you know, Black Tom Cassidy to have a figure. <laughs> uh, now, other figures in this line included X-Men and 
Spat and Grovel. Oh, right. You know, the, you, the, I the illustrious very well, Spat yes. and Grovel. Which, if we ever cover that uh, that issue where that X, Uncanny X-Men 350 with Gambit, we'll, we'll meet them All a right. little bit closer. Uh, now, this Blink miniseries was a lead-off for the ongoing title... Exiles, number one ship with an August 2001 cover date. The original creative, creative team was Judd Winnick and Mike McCone. In it, Blink is yoinked out of the Age of Apocalypse universe and added to a team of Dimension Hoppers, who had also been yoinked off of their home worlds. This team would visit many alternate Marvel universes, including 2099, the New Universe, the Ultimate Universe, the Prime Universe, and, and eventually places like House of M. The team roster was pretty fluid and at different times included Morph, Spider-Man 2099, Dazzler, Psylocke, Beak, and Sage. Exiles Volume 1 ran for a pretty staggering 100 issues, well, though it uh, was limping along under Chris Claremont's strips for the scripts for the final bit. <laughs> I guess like that's the, one of the perks of having his kind of contract. Right. Um, now, Exiles and the Exiles concept would be relaunched a couple of times as uh, New Exiles, Exiles Volume 2, Extreme X-Men Volume 2, and I think even now there's an Exiles title coming I believe out. there is right now, yes, yeah. Yeah. the Fresh Start Initiative. Or yeah. Now, it's uh, worth noting there's no relation between this team and the Malibu Ultraverse team of the same name, even though there were some Marvel characters on that team, including uh, the Juggernaut. Wow. Just just to make it easy for the collectors. Right. (laughs) And then, of course, Age of Apocalypse, featuring the X-Men one-shot. This was May 2005 cover day. Remember that touching ending we just read, where Magneto and Rogue watched alongside their son Charles as the nukes were landing, and they were were resigned to the sacrifice to restore the timeline. Well, uh, yeah, none of that actually happened. See, someone was able to dismantle the nukes before they went boom, despite the fact that we actually visually saw <laughs> them going boom, and he was, remember, speaking over these uh, atomic explosions. And so Earth-295 lived on, and in that Earth, or on that Earth, Magneto rebuilds the Statue of Liberty, and the United States assumes that he was responsible for saving the world. Yeah, he's not very out front about his not doing that. He's like, oh, that's... Good enough, then, I guess. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take the applause. Uh, now, Age of Apocalypse 10th Anniversary. This was a miniseries that ran six issues from May through June 2005, written by Akira Yoshida with art by Chris Pachalo. In it, the X-Men fight the Sinister Six for, like, six issues. And uh, many of the mutants introduced in the Prime Universe over the ten-year interim between the Age of Apocalypse and the Anniversary, they make their official Age of Apocalypse debuts, Uh including Psylocke, who was left out of the first one. That's so weird. So they just kind of went back there. Let's look at them all in there. They all all deserve a spot. Uh, Uncanny X-Force had the Dark Angel saga, saga. This ran in Uncanny X-Force number 11 through 18. That was August 2011 to February 2012. Cover dates written by Rick Remender. In this, Warren Worthington's Archangel persona rears its ugly head, leading his X-Force teammates to refer to McCoy, the Dark Beast, for assistance. He convinces them to travel to his old lab in the Age of Apocalypse universe so he can seek out a life seed in order to counteract the death seed already brewing in Warren. While in the Age of Apocalypse, X-Force naturally has a run-in with the X-Men. The surly Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler returns back to the prime Marvel universe with X-Force. And this was during the time where the 616 Nightcrawler was dead, so this brought one back. 
And if you if you read any of these uh, follow ups to the Age of Apocalypse, read this one. This is the best one. This okay. was uh, this was actually a great great story. Yeah, because I'll tell you the um, one the one you mentioned before, the tenth anniversary, seems like a real dud. Oh <laughs> man, like, fighting why? the Sinister Six. Oh lordy. Uh, now we we end the Dark Angel saga, and then we move on to Uncanny X Force. 19.1. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, March 2012 cover date. This was a pilot series for the ongoing Age of Apocalypse series. Yes, it got an ongoing. Uh, now, this ran a whole 14 issues from May 2012 to June 2013. And, uh, I mean, those are Avengers volume numbers these days, so I can't, really can't hold 14 issues against anybody. No, no, it's something... <laughs> And then the last one uh, so far is Secret Wars, Age of Apocalypse. This was during the 2015 Secret Wars where the entire Marvel Universe went on vacation. We got these weird miniseries for uh, yeah. ever. Was, was, that, like, was that the one where uh, uh, Steve Rogers turned out to be working for so There was some, some big reveal maybe, at the end. I can't remember. That, I, I, it's a five-issue miniseries. I made it about a half issue in, uh, but the uh, the entire miniseries ran from September through December 2015. And uh, don't have much to say about the Age of Apocalypse ongoing or the Secret Wars mini. Uh, I feel it would do them a disservice to just do a hot take. I managed to get through about half of each, like uh, half of a single issue of each before realizing that it wasn't my thing. And uh, rather than you know disparage it for sure. what it isn't, uh, I just, uh, I figured it's just worth a mention. It was an event and we it will be marked as such, you know. Uh, all I know is at the end of that, I didn't read the event either, but at the, at the end of that, Daredevil, uh, everyone forgot his identity, and he moved back to New York from San Francisco, and he became the assistant DA. And they never explained how or why ever. Yeah, it was uh, it was one of those uh, it was one of those like carrots on a stick. It's like yeah, maybe maybe in a year. They were they were like <laughs> oh we'll reveal this amazing. They never ever like explained what the, what the heck happened. But uh, yeah. Anyway, that is what it is. But uh, that does conclude our uh, talk about the Age of Apocalypse, as well as what spun out from the Age of Apocalypse uh, after the event. But, you know, the more recent stuff notwithstanding, it's a pretty tight event, I gotta say. You know, sure. This is my first time reading it uh, at all, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, and I, I did read, I'm gonna say 70% of it, which it wasn't bad. I, re- I read the bookend books and a bunch of the sure. uh, the minis, you know, as much as I get in. Uh, although, it's, I was thinking before, too, uh, on the Marvel Unlimited app, which is where I read all these, uh, they start the reading order with the, the four-issue Blink mini. Yeah, yeah. So it's so they start with the thing that came, you know, they obviously trying to establish a continuity. A continuity, here, yeah. A chronological look at I it. didn't even bother with it. I was like, I'm staying in the, <laughs> I'm staying in the nineties. I don't need to know all of the uh, the other posthumous uh, stuff the after the fact. <laughs> but now you bought this in the store, so let me hear about your I experience. Did. I did, and uh it was a it was one of those things that uh, we were kinda nervous about because it did cancel all the books we loved so much. Yeah. And uh and the fact that it was going four months put it one month past what previews would give us. Uh-huh. So, uh, like, when we're reading the first issues here and then we pick up an, a copy of previews and we're still in this world, it really gave you a feeling of, uh, like, this might be what it's going to be for a little while. I mean, and it's silly to even suggest that today. But, you know, I was younger at the time and uh, and was pretty new to the uh, to the fandom. I, I'd only been collecting for like five years at this point. Yeah. Um, which it's funny to think that that's new at some point. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was a, uh, very exciting. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it I hated at the time because it was so different. And then a lot of it I liked 
uh, because it was so different. So it was a very conflicting series yeah. to get in. And, um, and, and, you know, uh, we talked when, uh, when we did the death of Superman series where, you know, the, the speculation was ramping up. This was definitely when the speculation was ramping down. Oh, yes. Um, all the first issues, uh, and you know, I don't have sales figures because this was this was in that kind of miasmatic time of a uh, hero's world. Hero's and, world. So they, yeah, they, was, they got they weren't even on the diamond list and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know what the sales figures were throughout, but uh, I remember it was hard to find the first issues. I remember especially X Man number one. Huh. It was a tough one to track down. Um, that one took probably a few weeks, and I think I got it like in a pharmacy. Because I couldn't find it at any of the local comic shops. I used to and love were stuff like that, though. You find, yeah. you find oh, it yeah. in the weird rack somewhere, you know what I mean? Or like, oh, absolutely. Like you go to the weird candy store, the, where the, the mean guy is always ushering you out of the store, but he, he's got <laughs> the comics. Exactly. I used yeah. to get that all the time. <laughs> but uh, this was, uh, you know, that one took a while to, to track down. But at the end of it, uh, you know, it was a similar situation where the, the, where the old Rob Leefield guy told me to... Uh, told me that, you know, Omega and Prime are going to sell out. So, you know, had my mother pick them up for me while I was in school. And, I mean, there was a stack of them you could have choked a whale with. Because, right, yeah. you know, nobody was coming in for these things, especially at the price point. Right. I mean, that was $10 in just two X-Men comics. And uh, and in 1990s money, too. I mean, you sure, know, we're totally, sure. When, quite a when like a dough. regular... Yeah, when a regular comic was going for like a buck seventy-five, buck ninety-nine, maybe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was a that was a pretty big deal for that one day. Um, it's weird I, reading it now. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm older or because I'm so detached from the X Men now. Mm. The the ending was touching. You know, yeah, uh, with it is. Magneto it is touching. watching, yeah, and I, and I think that was lost on me the first time. I think it was just like, okay, we're done with this, right into Prime. You right. know, got to see where this goes, and and I guess that's just you know periodicals where you know you're you're trying to get to the to where you're up to date, and uh, so I think a lot of the. Uh, I think a lot of the somberness of the story was lost on me, and I was just happy to see it gone. Yeah, you probably didn't have the patience for Magneto's soliloquies. That, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we've had a lot of fun with those, but they do set the stage for a guy that's a very remorseful and very thoughtful. Very. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, Mag- Magneto's character had been kind of uh, sort of de-villainized already by this point, somewhat in the regular universe, but uh... yeah, because they de-villainized him and then they turned him into like a raving lunatic. Right. Yeah. So it was like it went from like one polar to the other, you know, I... where it was nice Grandpa Magneto to oh wow, this guy's going to you know send the planet into the sun. Magneto. Psycho, yeah, complete psycho. Yeah. At this point, actually, he was the psycho Magneto, but he was. I'm just yeah. saying that that it had happened that his character had been softened in the past. Sure. So... It wasn't unknown that he had, like, you know, feelings and thoughts and a heart, but this really did, you know, let you sit with the character and see the kind of thoughtfulness he has and, you know, the, the, that, in the end... And the debt he owes to Xavier. Right. And and that, you know, he realized, like, his goal of, you know, mutant acceptance, he would, you know, maybe the other way is going about it the wrong way, you know, the uh, psycho throw everything in the sun way or whatever. Yeah. Uh, His character definitely fared the best. Uh, A lot of characters, I mean, for me, this, I was buying no comics except for Batman at this point. I had pretty much walked away completely. And even Batman was not a regular, it was sporadic, but it was, you know, just trying to keep up a little bit with what was going on. Uh, so a lot of these characters to me, I've always just kind of lumped them in with, you know, 90s characters, 90s stuff, sure. I guess. 
uh, this helped to put new dimensions on them, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, that there's care going into these these characters. And, and you see which ones, I think, that the writers cared about more than <laughs> the others. Yeah. Some of them do seem like yeah, they just kind of came into, like, to have a walk-on role, and I'll see you later, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, my, my, my feeling of this whole thing was I, it was overall a very an interesting and, and more carefully plotted event than I think I, I gave it credit for, not knowing anything. I think uh, it's uh, I think it's more than a lot of folk gave it credit for. I think I think you you saying that you lump it in with the '90s stuff is perfect because yeah. you know when people are like oh it's like Age of Apocalypse and Deathmate and yeah you know, like they lump it in with like with like, these other events that really are yeah like the Deathmate thing really yeah. was a total rook you know what I mean whereas this oh yeah. This, you know, even though they, you know, it has the chromium covers, it has all that, all those trappings. Oh, it has all the trappings, yeah. And it has, you know, the, you know, they spun it out into, and we know behind the scenes, the, uh, you know, the marketing department was driving a lot of these extra issues. The X-Universe obviously was an afterthought. Oh, I'm sure. X, yeah. Even X-Men Chronicles and stuff. Even given all that, though, the, I think the core of it is intact, uh, that they were going to, you know, shift a bunch of characters and sort of go down a different road for a little while. And I, I would say I would give this a total thumbs up or whatever the heck you want to. Sure. Whatever the positive rating is, I would give that to this. It, it was it was overall interesting. Uh, you know, again, some points, some of those, like like we were talking about the, uh, you know, a Gambit and the Externals and Excalibre, all, all the little issues, the minis that went on between. Some of them weren't necessary. A couple that we could have done without, yeah. you know. A couple that were yeah. vital, though, you know, and really were sure. gripping. Uh, sure. And to be honest, I just joked about it, but I thought the X Universe books were all right, although not totally comprehensive, not essential. <laughs> but uh, you know, they were. They, I did enjoy seeing those characters in that you know world and when, sure. what they had to do. So, uh, good job on this one. And yeah. uh, if people don't, if people didn't notice, you know, Chris is the uh, a big X Men guy, especially from this period, and he took sure. heavy point on this one. I basically <laughs> I, I filled in a few gaps here and there with some caulk, but. Uh, he he's done a tremendous amount of work on this. We didn't we didn't think this would go six episodes. We were thinking we five, but yeah, initially uh, I was I was thinking three, and then like doing the outline for it, it went to five, and then when it got to the point where we realized just how uh, I mean we were going to be touching on every mover and shaker in the Marvel right. universe during X Universe. It's like oh man, this is gonna this got to be its own thing at this point. It's doing so, all those uh, bios, and it was good because it gave a little break, it gave a little. Uh, Pause before the big cataclysmic ending. The climax. Yes. Uh, another thing I, I do like about this event too is that the big, the big apocalyptic ending happens. Uh, it does. Even though later it's yeah. retconned out, but at the time of this, there's no, there's no fixing it. You know what I mean? There's, it's done there's, deal. It's, I mean, it happened. Yeah. That's all there is to it. And the only way out of it was to jump out of the timeline, which you know mm-hmm. we all wish yeah. we could do sometimes. Because halfway through Omega, I mean, the Midwest was was nuked. Right. I mean, I, and uh, you know that's that's done. So it's like there really is no way to to that, really step that's that back. That's a big shocking moment. You know what I mean? That's yeah. also where you know Apocalypse has been. You know, kind of setting up all his uh, his uh, whatever Apocalyptian things and his uh, ducks. Yeah, exactly. His <laughs> pens and stuff. So that was a big shocker. This really, this really did mm-hmm. have an air of finality about it. Even reading it twenty three years after the fact, folks. I think especially reading it now. Um, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't do the X Men anymore. I, I, you know, it's that. I think that's why this, uh, this deep dive kind of affected me the way it did. Where there is a poignance to it, and there is a finality to it, both yeah. in the book and for me out of the book. Because uh, I don't know when the next time I'm going to read an X Men book is. 
You know, I uh, they announced the new Uncanny X-Men and asked me a couple months ago. I've been like, yeah, I'll be there for it. Yeah. You're now st- I'm not so sure. You're still on the fence, I know. Yeah, well, yeah. It'll be a game time decision, and knowing you, Chris, you probably will end up getting it, and you'll regret it. And that's well, I'm an idiot, yeah. <laughs> the, the plight and life of the comic book collector. However, if you want to force Chris to read an X-Men book sooner, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com and recommend an X-Men book, and we will get to it. Uh, if you want to talk about Age of Apocalypse, Marvel events, or anything that we mentioned, or anything that's on your mind, right there, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic tmail history. We're on Tumblr, cosmic tmail history.tumblr.com, even though I've I've never been there, so I've ne- I, I couldn't say that I've... Uh, I wish- can't guarantee it. So I've, <laughs> I've not been there in quite a while myself. I do know for sure we are on Twitter at cosmic tmail. I've seen that. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly writings on DC Comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com and Chris's daily writings on older DC Comics at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com where he writes a review every single day of the week of a DC comic from any point in the publishing history. And uh, you're still cranking them out. You're getting close to that thousand number, buddy. Yeah, this week will be 950. So Woo! Yeah, we, you are, we are getting, getting there. Before the year is out, you will be hitting those four digits. So yeah, There's uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. You got to check it out. You <laughs> recently did the uh, Teen Titans uh, Walmart one, I noticed. I didn't, I didn't read that one yeah. yet, but I was. Yeah. I, I want to head over there because I don't know anything about those comics. I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm stupidly curious as well about what's going on I, with those. I, uh, I, I did some hot takes on that one, and... Uh, I, I, not not many people have uh, have really paid attention to that one. I think I kind of pigeonholed myself with Vartox Week. I think people want more Vartox. More Vartox. Only I got more... no Vartox left oh, to give. No, you got to so... make your own stories. <laughs> so when you move into the 2000s, people are like, eh. Nah. <laughs> uh, you can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find a chronological listing of every episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, as well as Weird Comics History, Real Comics History, and... Uh, the Young Animal Gatherum, where we're uh, revisiting our our previous look at Young Animal. We're combining them for easy consumption. That's right. Um, and uh, I think that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, and then since that imprint is done, this is our time to do yes. full wrap-up on that. And, of course, over at uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, like I say, that's the best place to see the shows in order and also for the uh, box sets that Chris puts together. Uh, oh, thematic yes. box sets. This will certainly become a box set, I'm sure. A, Very uh, so you can, uh, if you want to hear the whole thing in one place at one time, that is the place to go, folks. But I think that's all the apocalypse we have from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, I think we're done. <laughs> well, <laughs> until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Dig it. Well, I'm changing all my strings. I'm gonna write another traveling song about all the billion highways and the cities at the break of dawn. Well, I guess the best that I can do now is pretend that I've done nothing wrong and dream about a train that's gonna. Take me back where I belong Well now the ocean speaks and spits And I can hear it from the interstate And I'm screaming at my brother on his cell phone
Until we're parking in 